Chapter 2 of A Year's Prayer Meeting Talks This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kenrick Vizina A Year's Prayer Meeting Talks by Louis Albert Banks Chapter 2 Christ's Builders Matthew Chapter 7 verses 24 through 27, Revised Version. We are all builders. Our thoughts, our emotions, our words, our actions are constantly working away at a house not made with hands, builded of imperishable soul fabric. The most important house in the world is that which we call character. Better to live in one small room of a tenement house with the body while the soul dwells in a mansion of integrity and righteousness with many windows that open into the realm of spiritual beauty, than to live in the most splendid dwelling in the city on the most fashionable street with all the pomp and splendor of earthly show, while the soul dwells in a dark and dismal cellar without light or hope. Every one of us is building his own house. In building our modern city houses, if a man have the money, he can let the contract to a builder to construct him a house on a certain plan and go his way and trouble himself no more about it until the house is done. But one cannot build by proxy in the construction of character. It is a personal affair and must be built day after day and year after year by the personal strokes of our own hammer. It is a continuous thing. A man is all his lifetime building it. One cannot build up a good character and then go off and do what he pleases and come home to find it just the same as when he left. Yet that is what some people seem to think. They act as though they thought because they were converted 30 or 40 years ago and built up a certain religious experience and character that that is all that is necessary. There could not be a greater mistake. This house of the soul is building all our lives and can never be left to take care of itself. We must work steadily on until the last. He that endureth to the end shall be saved. As Dr. Parkhurst wittily says, there is nothing in God's earth that grows rank and fetid sooner than an experience. Our hymn asks, Where is the blessedness I knew when I first saw the Lord? Don't know. And it wouldn't do you any good if you had it. Blessedness doesn't keep. It is one of the all-pervading principles that the more delicate a thing is, and the more finely organized, the more directly it will decay and fall to pieces when once it had been parted from the root it sprang from. The perfume will evaporate from the rose, and the petals fall off very soon after it has left the stalk. Straight or stolen, a religious experience. The hymn just quoted from is an advertisement for lost joy that has jumped the fence and gone loose. It is like hunting after the blaze of a lamp when the oil is all burnt out. Keep the wick trimmed and the lamp filled, and you will have blaze enough without advertising for last night's blaze. You do not know where that is, and could make nothing of it even if you did. Now, there is a lot of meaning in all this, and it lies right down at the level of our exigency. Good things have got to be made over and over and everlastingly reduplicated. The fresh river must incessantly draw on the young rivulets that incessantly trickle from the hillside. Christian joy that does not bear the stamp of this very day and date is a Silurian deposit, an evangelical relic, piety fossilized. And our whole house of character is like that. What is past, of course, has to do with the present. 
If we did good work yesterday, it is easier to do good work today, and that will make it easier for tomorrow. But because the house was pleasant and beautiful until yesterday does not prevent us from putting untempered mortar in the wall today. Taken in a reverent sense, it is absolutely true that life is what we make it. Jesus says that everyone who hears his words, everyone who comes to know his divine message, will build a house of conduct, and that every such house will be tested. The wind will blow upon it, the rain will beat against it, and no such house, no matter by whom constructed, will escape a thorough testing in every part. There is no basis whatever in the Bible for the delusive dream that is proclaimed in some quarters today, that it is possible for a Christian to reach such a state of ecstatic holiness that he will be beyond the danger of temptation. There is no such promise as that in the Bible, and every illustration God has given us of the history of those who have sought to build up characters pleasing to him speaks to us of the universal struggle and battle with the storm. Depend upon it, your house will be tried by the wind and drenched by the rain. The temptations that come from the assaults of the enemy of our souls and from the deep sorrows that sweep over us are as real and terrible today as at any time in the history of the world. Longfellow, in that pathetic poem, The Chamber Over the Gate, recording David's grief over Absalom, says, There is no far or near, there is neither there nor here, there is neither soon nor late in that chamber over the gate, nor any long ago to that cry of human woe. O Absalom, my son! When we touch the deep sorrows and temptations of life, we find that we are close kin to those who sorrowed and struggled with temptation thousands of years ago. And when we would know the way of victory, we must go to him who is tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. That story of Christ's temptation never seems so real to me as in reading recently Dr. Alexander MacLeod's translation of it into a more modern form. A young man might have been seen one day, faint and weary, in a wild desert and among wild beasts in an eastern land. He was exhausted with hunger, and the marks of it were on his face. Poor and haggard and hungry though he looked, he was the son of a king and was on the way to his kingdom. The wonderful thing was that it was his father who sent him into the desert and suffered him to be without food for many days. A still more wonderful thing was that when he was suffering the sharpest pains of hunger and ready to perish, he did not doubt his father's love, nor that his father's way of bringing him to his kingdom was the best. But one day a stranger came up to him and said, You are the son of that king of whom everybody has heard, and to whom this wilderness belongs. If you be his son, why should you remain hungry? Bid the wilderness provide a table for you. Turn these stones into bread. Now, this young man could actually have turned the stones into bread. That would have satisfied his hunger. That might save his life. That was a way which, at the moment, might have seemed right. His father had sent him into the wilderness. His father had sent him hunger instead of bread. And he knew his father to be wise and good and loving. No, he said to the stranger. I will follow my father to the end, trust him to the end, trust him through hunger and faintness, trust him even to death. My father's love is better to me than bread. This stranger was a very deceitful man, but he saw at a glance that the king's son was resolved to go forward on the path of trust. So he followed the young man until he came to the capital town of the kingdom, and by and by they went up to the high towers of the temple. 
it is a great thing said the stranger once more to be a king's son and especially the king's son you are your father cares for you every moment and would not suffer a hair of your head to be hurt his servants follow you watch over you care for you suppose since you are cared for in this way as the king's son you cast yourself down to the court below see there is a whole army ready to receive you in their arms the young man simply said to trust my father's care when i am in the way of obedience and duty is one thing to put it to the test in the way you propose if i disbelieved it is another it would be tempting my father and it is written thou shalt not tempt the king so the stranger saw how noble this youth was and how kingly and well fitted to reign and he took him to a high mountain and showed him all its glory and the glory of all the kingdoms on the earth and said all these i will give unto thee if thou wilt love me and trust me as thou lovest and trusteth thy father but the young man turned round upon him in anger and said get thee behind me for it is written thou shalt worship the lord thy god and him only shalt thou serve then the stranger left him and the heavens opened and angels came and ministered unto him and the smile of the father shone round about him like a great light and far up in the depths of heaven there were songs of victory for this was none other than the son of god and the stranger was the devil who sought to lead him out of the right way from this story of the obedience of christ to his father we may see the essence of that solid foundation upon which we may build a character that will stand through all the storms of temptation which shall beat upon it jesus says every one therefore which heareth these words of mine and doeth them shall be likened unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock it is clear that the rock which jesus sets forth as a safe foundation for our house of human life is that of obedience to him it is the doer of the word upon whom the storms shall beat in vain he will take care of those who in obedient humility do his will end of chapter two recording by kenrick vizina